Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. If you were looking for a Noah Syndergaard update, well, guess what? Christmas came early. Thor, along with a few other Mets, hosted some lucky kids at the annual kids' holiday party at City Field. Syndergaard looks to make a full return from injury this coming season. He told our Steve Gelbs that those small outings at the end of last season were a huge help. I felt like it was really good for me to, to get out there just for two different aspects, just to... The fact that I could go into the off-season healthy, not have to worry about rehabbing, and because I've spent four months rehabbing and trying to get healthy and improve my body from where it previously was, so I feel like it was nice to go out there and, and see how hard my or how my hard work paid off. Does that just little end to the season make this off-season the same for you? Does it feel normal now as every other off-season? Um, and if you weren't able to do it, would you have felt like you needed to change things up? Um, no, I guess, like, the moment I got hurt, I realized some of the stuff I was doing in terms of, like, working out wasn't necessarily the right thing. And I've been working a lot with, uh, once I did get hurt, I started working with Eric Cressy and, and a guy, uh, Shane Rye as well. And uh, they worked together. And uh, I just started to realize how messed up my body actually was before I, I did get hurt. And so I, once my rehab program started, I started doing some of the, their methods and some of their workouts to try to improve my body. And that, that was just like scratching the surface. And now I'm taking it in the offseason. I'm able to, to go at my, my workouts at full force. You were very outspoken at the end of last season about Dan Worthen and, and wanting him to stick around. Obviously, that didn't happen. And now you don't just have a new manager in Mickey Callaway, but a new pitching coach in Dave Island. Have you gotten a chance to speak with him yet? Um, and what are your thoughts on, on what he can bring to the table? Yeah, I've met or I've spoken with uh, Dave on the phone, but I met Mickey at a, at a Knicks game, and I'm, I'm really excited to, to get the ball rolling just because those two minds of a pitching background combined 
who knows what we could learn and who knows what our, our pitching mechanics will end up like. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited to, to get the ball rolling there. I'm pretty, uh, I mean, Dan will be missed greatly because he was my guy when I got called up, so there's some nostalgia there. And uh, like he, he did a lot with me, so I couldn't be more thankful for the time that we had together. Mickey Callaway has made a point of saying he wants to try and push his top guys, so you, Jacob DeGrom, to 240 innings if he can. Is that, in your mind, something that you view as a challenge? Yeah, I think that's definitely attainable. Um, I think just step one is being able to, to get the ball every five days, staying healthy. Um, and DeGrom last year got to 200 innings. That's quite the milestone. And uh, I hope to, to get there myself. Is that your personal goal, 200, or do you have anything else that you're looking at? I just want to take the ball every five days and put my, my team in the best situation to win the ball game. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, December the 10th, 2017. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check out the show all the time over at our friends at MetsmerizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. The winter meetings are here, uh, the late night the constant cycle of news. I think, you know, it's funny because I think that it used to be so much more wilder back, you know, 10 years ago. I think that it's still wild. I don't know if it's the same. Maybe Twitter kind of, and Rosenthal and guys like that, those are kind of your clearinghouse at that point. You don't have to go to 50 different websites like you used to to get rumors and search. It's all coming to you pretty steadily. You just got to go to MLB trade rumors. But anyway, it'll be an interesting uh, next few days. It's been kicked off. Of course, uh, Shohei Otani uh, signed with the Anaheim Angels. And then the big news came uh, Friday night into Saturday morning. All It was snowing here in New York. Uh, the, the hearts of Yankees fans were warmed up. And John Carl Stanton went to the New York Yankees, which really ties into this show. Because, I mean, how many more times am I going to preview what the Mets need? And the Mets need a second baseman. The Mets probably need some bullpen help. They'd like to get themselves an impact bat. They're looking at probably in the market for maybe a Todd Frazier or a Jay Bruce. In the bullpen, you're looking at maybe Addison Reed, uh, Brian Shaw. I mean, a name came out today on Twitter that I thought was interesting, Tommy Hunter. That's actually interesting. There's a number of second basemen. I mean, we've talked about this. But the real, the real purpose of this show as we prepare for the winter meetings is – is to talk about the Yankees and, and the connection and the anger that Mets fans have after this move on Friday. And joining us in just a little bit will be Joe Casal, media consultant. Joe has been a friend of the program for a long time. Uh, I met Joe probably 10 years ago. He was in a Yankees forum when I did the NYBD Mets Yankees podcast. And uh, former agent, ton of information about how baseball works. And... Joe really has always been helpful in giving perspective on the Yankees. 
and giving a really decent Yankees take. And um, at the end of the day, um, being down in South Florida, he has a very strong opinion and very close to what's going on with the Marlins and why things happen. Now, here's the thing that I want to start out by talking about before we get to Joe, to Mets fan. And this is really important. The Yankees don't matter. And the media is going to try to agitate you. And they're going to try to agitate the Mets into making a move to win the offseason. This is not about winning the offseason. The Mets are not going to win the offseason. The Mets haven't won the offseason in a long time. The Mets didn't win the offseason 2014 and 2015, and they went to the World Series. The Mets haven't won the offseason since then. Uh, you know, maybe you could talk about signing Cespedes if you want to talk about that, but the Mets aren't going to win the offseason. The Mets haven't won the offseason in a long time, maybe since they signed Piazza after they traded for him back in the late 90s. Maybe you could talk about in 2002 when they, you know, they got Olimar, brought in Burnett, they brought in Movon. Maybe you could talk about them, quote-unquote, winning the offseason. How well did that work? The Mets are not going to win the offseason. The Mets are going to try to build a team based on the resources and the budget they have, and they're going to try to put out what I believe is the best team possible. Now, that doesn't make you happy, and that doesn't make you feel good. But here's the reality of the situation. And if you don't believe this, or if you don't want to believe this, and you want to complain about it, then you know what? Find some time. Go read a book. Go donate your time. Go root for another team. Go root for another sport. Do something else, because it's a waste of your time. Number one, the Mets are not going to spend in the stratosphere. The Yankees, the Dodgers, and the Red Sox. They're not. The Mets are a family-owned business. The Mets have finite resources based on the ownership's ability to spend. Uh, we know that. Howard McDell, our friend, wrote a book about it a few years ago, Will Pond's Folly. If you haven't read it or you haven't followed Howard, try to find it. Uh, it's probably an e-book. You could probably still get it. Read it. It'll give you everything about what happened. It'll give you why David Einhorn never became the owner, a bunch of stuff. We're not going to talk about that today. The Will Ponds have had issues with the way they've invested their money. You know that about Madoff. They're never going to be at that level. With that said, this past year, the Mets had, depending, and if you, you know, this is fact. This isn't me just going off and making numbers up. This is fact. The Mets, 2016 and 2017, at the end of 2016, according to baseball prospectus, this is Cott's contract, so remember that, had their highest two payrolls. The Mets had their highest opening day payroll this past year in the history of the franchise. At the end of 2016, they had their highest payroll ever, where they got up to $156 million. It was all tied in, and like Sandy Alderson said, payroll is tied into revenue. So if they have the revenue, if they have a good team, if the fans show up, if they buy merchandise, they are going to, for the most part, reinvest it. Steve Phillips, earlier this week on MLB Network Radio, in his morning show, on his morning show, I should say, said that when he was general manager of the Mets, you had two different philosophies. You had Nelson Doubleday, and you had Fred Wilpon. Nelson Doubleday was spend money to make money. And that's probably why Piazza came over, and that's why they got Piazza. And Fred Wilpon was more, well, you got to be able to break even, and as long as you break even, we're fine with everything. And I understand that philosophy, too. When you had the both of them, you had an interesting dynamic. That's probably why it didn't work out because they were truly 50-50 partners, and, and, and that's tricky when you have those diverse philosophies. There's credence to both. There's dangers to both. 
And if you're all angry that the Mets didn't go out and make a bid for John Carlos Stanton, you clearly don't understand how the you know baseball works. Because what, the thing about this is the Mets, if you factor in some projections for arbitration, have about $125 million of payroll already tied into the club this year. Uh, they don't want to go up to more than – 154 reportedly, and this is ballpark. So they're going to have to go out, and they're going to have to make about $30 million, maybe a little less, $25 million work. And that's not going to be easy when you want a couple of bullpen arms, when you want to get an impact bat, when you want to get a second baseman. It's not going to be easy. If you know about how the CBA is, the tax thresholds, which between this year is $197 million, the tax threshold, it's going up $2 million for 195 all the way up to about four years from now, $210 million. If you understand that, and I didn't realize this, so if I didn't realize this, you probably don't, that when you factor in payroll, you have to factor in player benefits, which include health insurance, all those things. You have to factor in the 40-man players on the roster and the minors, and the 25-man guys that are currently getting salaries. So it's everything. This past year, when the Mets finished with a horrendous record, uh, they had $174 million worth of liabilities. Now, that was projected by baseball perspective. And sure, they saved some money at the end of the year uh, by trading the last couple of months of the Walkers and the Grandersons and the Bruces and things like that. And yes, they got some money back from the contract of David Wright on insurance. They already have a guy making John Carlos Stanton money on their roster, and that's Ioannis Cespedes. If they didn't have Ioannis Cespedes, they would not be able... Well, you would have more of an argument to go out and make a bid here for John Carlos Stanton's 10-year contract, which has a th- an opt-out after three years. And if he doesn't opt out, pretty much you're paying him $30 million into his late 30s. He becomes very A-Rod-esque at that point. There's a lot of speculation that he won't uh, stay with this contract. that will opt out because he's a West Coast guy, and he's going to want to maybe cash in on what many believe are prime years right now, going to Yankee Stadium, being in the spotlight. He's going to get a ton more home runs just by being at Yankee Stadium because he's going to be in that ballpark and plenty of cheapies are going to go his way. So maybe he's going to be a guy that's consistently going to hit 60 home runs. So he may be in for a payday in three years, and I don't even know if the Yankees are going to pay him at that point because guys like Judge and uh, Sanchez are going to need some paydays too. And the Yankees don't even want to go into the tax situation because as you get further and further, it gets expensive. Uh, At least the Yankees will pay maybe the tax on one year. So this idea that the Mets don't spend, I just gave you reasons why what they spent last year was pretty much uh, a solid amount based on who they are and what they can afford. Jerry's Familia, Syndergaard, DeGrom, Harvey, all these guys. You know, Matt's is going to be, not yet, but he will soon be arbitration eligible. These guys are all going to get significant pay raises. Remember, in 2015, you went to the World Series with a little over $100 million of payroll. So... You did that with essentially a pitching staff making league minimum, but pitching like $20 million a year pitchers. Now those, those, that bill's coming home to do. So the real anger shouldn't be, again, and I've said this, at the ownership group. They are who they are. You know the kind of financial parameters that they need to be in. Now you could argue, well, they had $20 million more last year to spend to be under the tax. So it's not like they, they were about to go over. You could do a lot with $20 million. True. And if they were in the pennant race, I have, I have a funny feeling 
they would have went out and maybe added some players. I don't think they would have just let the team die on the vine, which they did during the rebuild. Um, and I think they'll add to this team if this team shows something. The anger you should be directing at, especially after hearing Noah Syndergaard at the party, at the at holiday party that the, the Mets uh, had this past year, where he talked about the structure. You heard Syndergaard in the open. He talked about, though, at the party how you know he's got a structured program that Mickey Calloway and Dave Island have him on a structured program that he never had this before. He talked about not really having his body and his health and conditioning in the right uh, frame of mind. Now, all of that falls on the player. It's the accountability of the player uh, to go out there and take care of themselves, to be ready and prepared. And I said it for two years, this team was never prepared, never prepared to come out of spring training and win. They were not serious. They had that lightning in a bottle World Series run, and they just thought that this is the way it's going to be. They're just going to show up, and they're going to win, and everything's going to go their way. And they found out that that's not the way it happened. And the coaching staff on the field, and it falls also on the front office for the kind of medical um, program or lack thereof they put together, are all in this boat. So to me, everybody's acting like the Mets, who are a 90-loss team, and you are what your record is, have this trash roster when they don't. And they want them to go out, and the media wants them to go out, and they're going to antagonize the fans, and they're going to make snarky comments to go out and win the offseason and make bad moves. Moves that in two or three years are going to prevent the Mets from maybe making, at that time, a realistic good move. You can't fall for it. You can't fall for it. Because at the end of the day, you don't know what's going on with Sandy Alderson. Sandy Alderson never, never has been one to keep his negotiations public. He didn't know what was going on with Cespedes, and they wound up signing him. He didn't really realize... Uh, what the plan is every year. You know, kind of, based on what, really, Mike Puma and Mark Carrigo, the only two that have any inkling about the plan with the Mets, or any what appears to be inside information. And I don't even know if that inside information is how directly that is to Alderson. I, I wonder. Yeah, maybe it's the owner. Maybe the owner is giving him stuff that he wants to leak out there. Who knows? All I know is that Sandy Alderson doesn't manage his team through the media. Because if he manages a team through the media you wind up losing your job. You wind up doing the wrong thing. And two seasons ago, two off-seasons ago, when the Yankees didn't sign any major league free agents, the media was torturing torturing them. And how did that work out? They got a pretty good club. And they made a pretty good move with Stanton. And yeah, I was joking around on Twitter about collusion with Jeter and stuff like that. And you know what? It is the optics are bad. The optics are really bad. And I certainly think that if the uh, MLB commissioner's office wanted to avoid the deal, they have their right to do that. But MLB created this problem, but Schillick created this problem when they brought Jeffrey Loria into the building. And they allowed Jeffrey Loria to own the team. And they finagled John Henry to go to uh, Boston. So Bud Schillick created that. Bud Schillick created it and, and helped basically Loria get the valuation of the club up so he could sell it. All the wheels have been in place for well over a decade. So that's not Derek Jeter's fault. I don't like Derek Jeter. I didn't like, you know, I didn't really cover him day in and day out, but the one or two times that he was in his presence, I didn't really like him. So I could tell you that. It has nothing to do with me being more leaning to the Mets. I just don't like the guy. I've never felt warm and fuzzy about him. I think he's one of the most overrated athletes that we've ever seen in this town. That doesn't uh, take away from what he did, but 
he was overrated. I think I think the narrative narrative driven overratedness is what I would say. So to me, you can't be mad at the Yankees, and you can't be worried about the Mets making moves to combat this Stanton move, because that's not what this is about. It's about building the right team with the right payroll flexibility based on the rules of engagement that they have that are not going to change. This is a family shop. This is not a corporate conglomerate. And all I'll say is this. You know, you could run out and give up some pitchers for Andrew McCutcheon. You could overpay for somebody. Is that the right move? Just to win the offseason? That's not what Sandy Olderson's all about. And you know what? Every team I've seen that's won the offseason, the Marlins even won the offseason a few years back when they signed Jose Reyes. Remember that? Uh, when they were trying to get Albert Pujols. You know, when they brought in Ozzie Guillen and that whole thing. And, and where are they now? The Yankees don't matter. The media doesn't matter. What the media says and what happens over the next few days will not add anything to the season. The season is not going to be won or lost now. It just won't. I'm sorry. Now, if they don't do anything and they can't get any moves made, yeah, that, that's a problem. The Mets will make moves. Will they be players that have been reported? Maybe. Will they be the moves you like? Most certainly not, because you probably everybody's got a different opinion who could be the second baseman. Personally, I don't want Starlin Castro. I don't think he's very good. I think, he, I think he's overrated despite the fact that he's an all-star. I think Starlin Castro would not be the right move, especially if he gave up prospects for him. Uh, you know, at this point, Kipnis and Kinsler and, you know, I'm, I'm a little unsure based on that. I think the real answer I'd say is they're all the same to me, these guys, for the most part. It's a matter, does getting Ian Kinsler prevent them from getting the bullpen arms they need? Does it prevent them from really bringing in what is a more impact bat like a Jay Bruce? The Mets are going to be shopping in the three- to five-year deal aisle. That's where they're going to shop. And that ain't going to change. They already got their big fish, and that's Cespedes. And if he doesn't work out, then there's nothing they can do this offseason. If Syndergaard and DeGrom don't pitch like they, everyone thinks they can and have pitched in the past, it doesn't matter what they do this offseason. They can't go out and sign three starters Tyler Chatwood got $15 million, and he's probably at best the number three, and we'll see if that's the case. The guys on this roster have to perform the way they have, and there is a benchmark of performing. It's not like it's out of left field here, no pun intended. So at the end of the day, the next few days is not about trying to make the, 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 the move that will take the Yankees off the back page. It's not about countering the Stanton move. Don't forget about what the media said and the jokes and the irrelevance and all the other stuff that you're going to hear. Ignore it. It's about getting the right second baseman. It's about getting a second-tier impact bat. It's about getting the right bullpen arms. And then it's mainly about going in, maybe filling out with some veteran players. They don't have a lot of room on that 40-man roster. And potentially getting into spring training and get the right attitude and the right frame of mind and the right preparation and getting a competent field staff their opportunity, or having a competent field staff have their opportunity to actually put this team in prepared for the season, something that hasn't happened in three years. So the guys to get mad at are Terry Collins. The guys to get mad at are Dan Worth. And those are the guys to be mad at. That's why this team was so bad this past year. You should be mad at the owner. If you're going to be mad at the owner, be mad at them for letting those guys stay in the building as long as they did. But to be mad about the Mets basically performing 
as you would expect in terms of the resources they have, for them not to go out and bring in a player that they clearly would have to compromise their roster to keep in there and potentially compromise their roster for years to come in terms of flexibility, you know, don't be mad about that. You should be happy. They made a decision on Cespedes. You have to live with it. Anyway, let's take a quick break. When we return, we'll have Joe Casal, media consultant. He'll uh, chat a little bit about his thoughts. I'll bring up the fact about how the economics of this whole thing uh, works. Uh, I just told you a little bit about how the CBA and the repeater tax, which you're not going to hear, and how close the Mets are really to that and why there is as little payroll flexibility as many don't report properly. $20 million, that's how close the Mets were to paying tax last year. If those, again, I'll preface it by saying if the baseball prospectus information is correct. We'll take a quick break. We'll have Joe Casal on right after this. Hey, Mets fans, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com right now. That's Mets, M-E-R-I-Z-E-D, online.com, and get Metsmerized today. We're back, uh, Winter Meetings Edition, as we prep for the Winter Meetings. And uh, not a new guest to the show, but a new guest to this podcast. First time we've had him on in a while. Probably last time I had him on was back in the old uh, Long Island ESPN radio days. Joe Casal, media consultant. Uh, if you follow him on Facebook, if he lets you follow him on Facebook, interesting follow. And uh, I don't think he's on Twitter anymore. But anyway, Joe, welcome back to the program. How you doing down in uh, South Florida? Hi, Mike. Doing well. We have our little cold snap here, so we're in the 40s and 50s for a few days, so we can't complain hey, about that this time of year. There's, there's snow on the ground on Long Island. Do you want to switch with your 40-degree weather over there while everybody yeah, else for, is Yeah, uh, for one day, it's good. Being a Connecticut native, I moved here because of the snow, but I can always handle it in December for a day. Then after that, I get right. a little antsy. <laughs> right. You know, I was thinking of you, Joe, as uh, this trade from John Carlos Stanton. I always call him Mike Stanton, and his name isn't Mike Stanton anymore. I mean, it's John Carlos Stanton. I guess that's – I'm getting old now. You know, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm like, a, you know, one of those, those old baseball fans that can't get it right. But anyway, um, you know, when you heard the news about the Yankees acquiring Stanton, of course, a couple things, and I like to have fun on Twitter with this stuff. A, the collusion and Derek Jeter comes into play. Uh, B, how can the commissioner's office uh, let this happen? C, the Yankees are unstoppable. I mean, look, from a standpoint of baseball in the Yankees, it's a good move for the Yankees. Um, There's not many teams. I don't even know if the Dodgers, and I think that's the part, that's why I brought you on, could really absorb this contract because even though there's an opt-out, there is a risk. Of course, across town, the Mets fans are upset, but I think the reality is, when you really peel the onion, to use that old term that Brian Cashman used many years ago, I don't see how any other team could have taken this risk 
with John Carl Stanton. And I don't even think that has anything to do with the fact that Derek Jeter was on the other side of the transaction. Well, I think that, you know, I mean, people get into conspiracy theory type of things, but if you follow the Yankees and you have any understanding of their history, you realize Derek Jeter's not looking to do Brian Cashman any favors. And the reality of the situation, it was one of those perfect storms. Um, Stanton has a no trade clause, so he is going to control where he wants to go. I mean, and, and it is not against the rules to give a player a no trade clause. And it is not Derek Jeter's fault that Giancarlo Stanton got a no trade clause because that was a contract that Jeffrey Lurie had negotiated and gave to him. So he was not going to go someplace he didn't want to go. And that's his right. So that really limits the suitors. So to Stanton's credit, he wasn't thrilled about the possibility of going to St. Louis or San Francisco, but he did meet, meet with those teams, um, which he's not obligated to do, by the way. And he did. He decided that's not where he wanted to go. He gave the Marlins a list of teams he would go to. And for the Marlins, it was more important for them to offload this contract. And I think where the misinformation comes in, aside from the usual hysterics anytime the Yankees make a a big transaction, is that no matter who bought the Marlins, they were going to trade this contract. It just doesn't fit with where the team is presently. And so it just happened to be this year, given the price tag of the team, given the fact that this ownership group is still looking for investors, and it it was like this perfect storm for the Yankees. The Yankees have a lot of money coming off the books. If you figure it out from a tax standpoint, it is in essence Starling Castro and Matt Holliday's Tax, you know, salaries are equal to what Giancarlo Stanton's going to make this year. And really, to take it a step further, this is in essence a three-year deal because Giancarlo Stanton has an opt-out after the 2020 season, and he may very well opt out and decide to go to, go west. And if he does, unlike the situation with Sabathia and Arod in the past, I think the Yankees would be happy to let him go because if you look at the way the Yankees are operating their business right now, they're really looking to get younger and more athletic and more in line with, with cost controls. There's only one bad contract left on the team, and that's Jacoby Ellsbury, which is a far cry of where the Yankees were, let's say, three or four years ago. Absolutely. I have Joe Casal, media consultant, joining me. Uh, obviously, we talk Mets on this show but and baseball, but um, this is a big deal, the Stanton trade. It impacts, uh, obviously, the Mets as well because of the – the PR and, and, and the division and baseball, and, and that's why we're getting into it. Uh, the one thing, Joe, that a lot of – I don't even know if the media really reads it. I was reading up on the CBA, and I was reading up on the, uh, the, the basically the competitive tax that a lot of people talk about, but they don't really get into details. Now, the tax threshold is supposed to go up by about $15 million over the next four years, so it's going to peak out at about two ten. Um, and, and I don't know if a lot of the fans realize the first time you get a 20% tax, the second time a 30% tax, the third time you're at a 50% tax. That's, that's the big one. And, um, I didn't realize that player benefits are tied into that, including 40 man salary, uh, you know, players. So a lot of times when people are calculating the payroll and they criticize teams for payroll, 
They're not realizing there's other things in there. Like, for example, the Mets, who I, I understand the anger about how that ownership group goes about their business. But if you go to baseball prospectus, you go to contracts, last year they were only about $20 million under the tax when you put in all the player benefits. That's not a lot. And the Mets, unlike the Yankees, who are more of a corporate brand, they really can't afford that ownership group to take on even the 20% tax. Uh, I'm sure someone who's pretty much entrenched in this stuff, used to be an agent, you know this stuff better than even I, but I really think that that's an underreported thing. And I don't think even the Yankees want to get into more uh, of paying the tax more than once. I don't think they want to do the 30 to 50% payout, even going forward. And, and this Stanton if he, deal, if he doesn't opt out, eventually the chickens will come home to roost. They're not worried about it. But, you know, there is a certain amount of risk with this, and I, and I think that part of it is where the fans don't understand, hey, you know, why couldn't the Mets get on this? And you're talking about 25 to $30 million this guy's owed going forward. Well, and also the taxes, you get reset. And I think what the Yankees will do, the Yankees are going to get under the tax after this year, which means they get reset, which means the Yankees now, they're no longer a third-time offender, if you will. So when the tax gets reset, they can go out and do business um, the way they would like to do business. Now, again, they're also doing business in a different way with all of these younger players like Judge and Sanchez and Gliber Torres and even Didi Gregorius, at some point you're going to have to pay those guys. So when you're thinking about your contracts and general managers just don't think about contracts a year or two out, they think three to four years out because now you start getting guys that are arbitration eligible. You know, I mean, the thing is right now, Sanchez and Judge are not arbitration eligible yet. They will be soon. And so you have to start factoring in all of that when you start doing your calculations going forward. And I think the Yankees feel comfortable over the next three to four years, they're going to be in a much more favorable tax situation. And, and this is where a lot of people in baseball saw things change when the Yankees were sellers after in the middle of the 2016 season that the fear was if they start running their mod, their baseball model more efficiently, where you're bringing in younger players, where you've got more cost controls, once they get down from a tax standpoint, gearing up to the 2018 free agent class with a bevy of young players, they become a very dangerous organization. And because of what Brian Cashman has done over the last couple of years, it put him in a position for if there was a perfect storm, he could get in the Giancarlo Stanton sweepstakes. And it turned out that it was a perfect storm. Um, the Dodgers weren't really in. The Yankees didn't have to. They really only had to offload the Castro contract to make it fit for them. And the Marlins, in this case, unlike when they eventually trade Osuna and Yelich, they weren't looking for high-end prospects. They were looking for somebody to take on the bulk of the contract. It will be different when they move other players because those other players, from a salary perspective, are so appealing to teams, they'll be able to give up. They're going to have to give up better prospects for the Marlins to acquire, which they will need to do if they're going to rebuild this thing the right way. And, Joe, you talk about young players and the Yankees. And, uh, you know, now with players getting – I mean, you're an all-star player. I think it's pretty safe to say you're going to get a 20 to $30 million a year. Um, 
you know, maybe 30s more on the, you know, all-time, you know, top of the cream of the crop. You have to do what the Yankees did. Uh, you know, look, if Judge is in his arbitration or going to free agency, I don't know if they make this deal. Uh, you know, the Mets are in a situation. you got DeGrom and Syndergaard uh, who are going to be arbitration eligible or are arbitration eligible, um, and then they're going to be free agents in the not-too-distant future. What they do now impacts those guys. Uh, you know, at some point, if your payroll is only going to be 150 in their case, 160, most teams will be around there. They're not going to be like the Dodgers and the Red Sox and the Yankees. Uh, you know, 30% of your payroll locked up in one player in baseball, this isn't the NBA. That's very dangerous. It's going to be really interesting how team building is going forward because the salaries, I guess, on star players are probably not going to go down. I would assume they're not going to go down. No, they're not going to go down. I think what you're going to see is you're going to see teams that are going to have basically four core players and who you choose as your core players going forward is going to dictate how you round out the rest of the roster. Now the risk, I mean, everybody talks about pitching. The risk of building your roster around pitching is it's so fragile because of injury that if you have one or two pitchers that you're, putting the bulk of your money in and they get hurt, you're really impacts your entire roster. Whereas if you're doing that with position players, the thought is, especially the way baseball is being run today, I can, if I can patch five innings out of starters, I'll just go to the bullpen. So you're seeing teams kind of making a shift to being bullpen heavy and offense heavy and doing what they can with starting pitching. Um, which is which is basically an anti-model of what baseball used to be. All we used to hear is pitching, pitching, pitching. And right now you're seeing the game shift. I mean, I think this year was the lowest year of pitchers that have pitched 200 innings in like 60 years in baseball. So you're, you're seeing in a weird way starters, I wouldn't want to say devalued, but, but you're seeing the priority shift to offense and bullpens and cost control players than you do pitching. In the rare case with the Mets, where they still have a couple of pitchers who are still cost controlled, they, they have to start making a determination how many of those guys you want to keep, how many of those, those guys you don't. Because it's almost impossible to keep all four of them and build the rest of your roster because the cost factor is going to take you out of the game. And you look at a guy like Tyler Chatwood, uh, obviously not great numbers, pitching for Colorado, better numbers on the road. I think his average annual value on his contract is somewhere between 13 and $15 million. A good bullpen arm is going to fetch $9-10 million a year. A closer may fetch the same amount as Chatwood, who's a starter, back end of the rotation starter, with maybe number three upside in the right environment. Uh, it's amazing because you know you go back ten years ago, Joe. I've talked to you for about ten years. A really good starting pitcher was getting fifteen million dollars. Bullpen guys were getting four or five million. The gap is right. almost one to one now. It's really amazing. It is, and and you're seeing. Well, you saw him last year when Dellen Betances went to arbitration. It was the first arbitration case where they were trying to set a a mar- a, a standard for setup guys. And it was the one reason the Yankees usually don't the Yankees have only fought maybe three arbitration cases over the last 20 years. 
And the reason why they fought the Batanzas case so hard is that they didn't want to set a precedent for setup guys. And let's say Batanzas got five, five million last year in arbitration. That would have set a standard for a set of guys. And you're going to, and sooner or later that's going to happen because you're seeing the value shift to bullpens. And these guys are going to start commanding big dollars. And that is going to impact, that's going to impact your entire roster. So while people say baseball doesn't have a salary cap, they don't, but the tax serves as a cap in a lot of ways because teams don't want to be in a position where they're paying that tax out. And so it serves as kind of a trigger, keep salaries down in some markets. And yeah. now and the I argument the comes. Yeah. yeah. And the, the argument then becomes. Right. And then the argument then becomes in markets where the television contracts are large, um, should should teams say the hell with it and go for it anyway? That that's a different question, but it definitely serves as a drag of sorts on salaries. What's interesting, and I have Joe Casal, media consultant, with me about teams as I go up and down. I was talking about this in the open. There's really not many teams left. The teams that are just being sold that are what you would call family shops. These are all venture capital. Huge investment. Yeah, Derek Jeter's a, an owner per se, but he didn't put up his money. Even though he made a ton of money as a player, he didn't make that kind of money uh, that you need to own a team. You don't have too many family shops left. I mean, the Mets to a certain degree are, and it makes you wonder as time goes on, um, can a family shop type of ownership compete as it gets more expensive? As that, I mean, eventually those thresholds for the tax are going to go up because of inflation not going to be $210 million forever. Uh, as payroll becomes normal, where if you're, if you're below 150, that's you know, at some point going to mean you can't compete. You have to wonder how family shops, and I'm using that's my term, maybe that's the wrong term, compete in this game in five years, maybe even sooner. Well, it depends, depends on the family. If it's the Walmart family, <laughs> you can. That's, but, that's uh, pretty much but a Seriously, I think I think what you'll see, I, I think what you'll see, and you could see a lot of different things. I mean, the Mara family partnered with the Tishes when the cost of football began to rise, and they created an ownership block. I think that even the Steinbrenner family making the deal for the Yes Network with Fox created more cash. I think you're going to see different ways to form groups. I mean, the one thing about baseball – Baseball is a very healthy sport right now. The money from Major League Baseball advanced media is jacked the, the franchise values sky high. I mean, the Marlins, essentially a franchise run as poorly as any franchise in sports, fetched $1.2 billion on the open market. So Amazing. these franchises are very healthy. How they operate is a completely different matter. How... Um, teams want to use their salaries, how teams want to build their rosters, those become different things. I, I think it does get down to, we, and even in the analytics age, it gets down to scouting because what we're seeing, Mike, is that the most valuable commodity in baseball is the cost-controlled player. 
I mean, Aaron Judge made $567,000 last year for 52 home runs. It's the greatest value in baseball. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so, you know, you're seeing the Yankees traded an all-star second baseman because they have the number one prospect in baseball who's a $567,000 guy playing second base right. or at some point next year. Until then, they'll have another guy making near the minimum playing that position. So what ends up happening when you're looking at a chart, each position has a numerical value attached to it. And this is how the game is changing. And the teams that are upside down in that, the Dodgers being one, still feeling the effects of taking all of those Red Sox contracts on in 2013, they couldn't get into the Stanton Derby, you know, unless they could offload a lot of contracts. And so they're even trying to run a more efficient model. Um, and, but it takes time to get rid of those contracts, as it did with the Yankees. They had to go through that cycle of waiting until Teixeira retired, waiting until A-Rod retired, waiting until you know, they, they ran through all of these bad deals And now their model is really cost-efficient. If you look at the Yankees, let's assume Mm -hmm. for a moment they bring CeCe Sabathia back. Right. They don't have a – they only have one starting pitcher over 30. They have two position players over 30, Brett Gardner and Chase Headley, both in the last year of their contracts, both with guys, if they choose to, in the minor leagues that could take their places. Um, their bullpen, the only person over 30 is David Robertson. Um, so they completely changed the paradigm from the way they used to do business, which is why I don't I, – when I look at the Giancarlo Stanton deal, I see it as a three-year contract because I do think he'll opt out, and I don't think the Yankees will sign a 31-year-old Giancarlo Stanton no matter how well he's playing because I don't think they're going to change their model. I think they're going to stick with what they're doing right now. Yeah, and you think about it, that's deja vu with A-Rod. When they got A-Rod, they got A-Rod in 2004. After the 07 season, he opts out. That was when they had the Hank Steinbrenner and Hal Steinbrenner switch over. And uh, Hank blinked because Cashman, from what I remember, did not want – once he opted out, he was like, we're done with you. Then they re Well, A-Rod. exactly. Right, and that would be similar – with Stanton, now here's the thing, Joe. You look at, you know, like a Cespedes, who's maybe not on the level of John Carlos Stanton, but he's not a bad player. I mean, he's not going to 60 home runs, but he's good in his own right. And if, depending on the metrics, there's been years where he's been just as good, if not better. There's a guy that gets a three- to five-year deal. The guys who are elite that get the seven- to ten-year deals, those are the guys that are going to bust your payroll. So if you're going to hang in that three- to five-year deal type of player, Jay Bruce, Cespedes, I'm just throwing a couple of names locally here, you've got to develop impact players on your end because then you'll have a very good team, but I'm not sure uh, how easy it's going to be for you to compete. You can compete in baseball. You can go out and get some lightning in a bottle, but you're going to need those guys, like you said, those four guys that are your anchors, so to speak, that are probably going to get seven-year deals, and that money, that's probably going to be dead money in years five, six, seven Maybe you get five years. Maybe six and seven are dead, dead money years. It's inevitable. So if John Carlos Stanton is going to stay here for 10 years, I would guess that three to four of those years at the end are not going to be good value or maybe dead money. 
similar to what's Correct. going on with, with, unfortunately, David Wright with the, with the Mets. And I think that and, – and really, people compare it to the A-Rod deal, and it is similar in the sense of the trade. Where the Yankees made the mistake with A-Rod was signing him to a deal after he opted out. The, Yankee, the A-Rod deal for the Yankees was a phenomenal deal. Where it turned sour was the opt-out and, and those back-end years because they didn't work. It was sunk cost and then with everything else that went on, with being suspended and all the craziness that ensued, um, that was the mistake. So I, I, and I think, obviously, people can change their minds, but it looks like the Yankees have learned from that mistake. And they not only are a more cost-efficient group, I mean, they now, they didn't sign Otani. They have $3.5 million to spend in the international market. Between now and next June, they lose it. So you know the Yankees are going to spend that money. And again, that's a crapshoot. But you know what? One of those guys can, moves up the ladder in six years. There's another asset. Or you can spin them off in a trade. I mean, one of the reasons why the Yankees were able to include Blake Rutherford, who was their first-round draft pick in 2016, in the trade for Tommy Canley and David Robertson was the emergence of Esteban Florial as a five-tool real prospect. Now, feeling he was an international signing. So the guy went from on nobody's prospect list and in one year, he's a top 20 prospect in the game. And he's just turned 20. So they finally are basically making the kind of baseball decisions a smaller market team makes, but yet you've got the financial might of the Yankees. That makes a big difference. And I think that teams are going to look to follow that model going forward. I know the Dodgers are. And they're trying like heck to get their payroll down so they can be more flexible on the open market. Being in South Florida, obviously, teams and fans like the Mets and other teams are going to be looking at what's next. D. Gordon was traded. Um, Stanton was traded. Now, the other guys, like you mentioned, Ozuna, Yelich, they're not as much of a sense of urgency, I think, to trade them now. Justin Bohr, who I think eventually will be uh, a pretty decent asset. Uh, what's the scuttlebutt down there? Do you think they wind up trading one or both of Ozuna and Yelich, because those are the guys now that I think everyone's going to start talking about. And I'm guessing, and again, this could change. I mean, we're, we're recording this on Sunday with the winter meetings. Things could change within five minutes. Um, you know, I'm guessing that, uh, that, that there's going to be some talks with these two guys over the next few days. Well, if you're the Marlins um, and you get offers for those guys, now the, the difference between trading Yelich and Osuna um, and trading Stanton is that you're not dealing with a large contract. You're dealing with guys who at their age and financial situation in the game could get back top four prospects in return. If you're the Marlins and you have the worst farm system in baseball, you're not keeping these guys another year. The longer you keep them, the longer you're running a risk. What if one of them gets hurt? One if one of them has an off year, um, if, if you get offers, just use an example, if the Dodgers want to trade one of their top two or three prospects or two, let's say two of their top five prospects and legitimate prospects for Osuna, you've got to make that deal. You have to do it. Um, 
you have to you have to do the same thing with Yelich. Um, the guy who could probably get more than all of them is J.T. Realmuto, the catcher, because there are so few catchers in the game. He is young. He is cost-controlled. He's not even arbitration eligible yet. Um, it, you know, the, the Marlins could do, in a way, what the Yankees did last summer, the summer of 16, where Brian Cashman acquired prospects that immediately changed the face of their farm system. And that's what the Marlins have to do. Now, down here, fans, Marlins fans have been through this three other times. So it's, it's really right. tough to expect them to keep stomaching it. Um, but, they don't ha- but there isn't a choice. I mean, no matter who bought the team was going to have to gut it because it was such a financial mess. And that's a whole other discussion as to why Major League Baseball allowed the Marlins to be a financial mess. But they were. And so right. it's the only way you can do it. And the hope, if you're a Marlins fan, is this time they do it right. Now, you don't have anything but hope on that because there's no proof that this ownership group will do it right. And it's easy to say give them the benefit of the doubt. But, you know, when you've burned a fan base three other times, it's pretty hard to ask them to give you the benefit of the doubt, no matter who's doing the pitching. So, you know, I mean, Derek Jeter may be a popular player on River Avenue, but he's not even popular. He's not even the most popular ex-Yankee in South Florida. That's A-Rod. So, you know, it's really impossible. That's a great point. You know, it's really impossible for people to just go, oh, we've got to listen to Derek Jeter. I mean, Derek Jeter has no experience in this. He may turn out to be a great CEO five years from now. But right now, there's been so many missteps along the way. I don't blame Marlins fans for saying, hey, I'm not not supporting this team. How could you blame them? Joe, they never came He's got an uphill battle. They never, and I'm not blaming them, but they never, when you say Marlins fans, you know, and again, you know, you, you hear National League town, you go and see uh, the Mets go down there, what, nine times a year. Uh, it was never packed. I mean, yeah, they packed it for the World Series uh, both times. Remember the second one when the Yankees were involved. The first one was, I guess, you know, more of a different time there in the late 90s. Uh, but you'd never get the sense it's really a baseball town. Now, you're down there. Um, they've certainly embraced the NBA. Uh, with Pat it's Riley. definitely a big. There's the six Dolphins. million people that live in Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach County. It's a huge baseball contingent. Um, this is a this is a franchise that drew three million people twice. But what happens is if you keep dumping on the fan base, which this which four ownership groups have done now, it's hard to tell the fans to keep coming back. You know, so it's it's like anything else. I mean, look, I remember when LeBron signed here. And all of the national basketball writers just ripped it in Miami. Nobody goes to games, blah, 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 blah. They've sold out over 400 games, even after LeBron left. It's a basketball town. The University of Miami is the third straight year. They have sold out their arena for the season. Um, It turned from a football town to a basketball town. And it wasn't just the winning. It was the way the Heat ran their franchise, how visible guys were in the community, how many things they've done. Mike, nobody in the Marlins does anything here. I mean, you wouldn't know they existed, except the Knights, they're playing a team that has a a good travel fan base, like the Mets or Yankees or Dodgers or whatever. They have to really do this from scratch and really get into the community. 
and really give the fans a reason to care. And if they don't do that, I don't care how they run their franchise, nobody's coming. I mean, you know, it's just, it's not going to happen. So they really almost have to be, I don't want to say a minor league franchise in the sense of having a zillion promotional days or anything like that, but they have to give the reason, fans a reason to care. And, you know, and, and this is, is nothing to do with Derek Jeter. It's not really his fault. But when you trade the best player on the team, you trade the MVP in the league and is what is really a salary dump, while it is the proper business move, fans don't want to hear about that. Fans, you know, are saying then, you know what, slash the ticket prices. Why am I paying major league dollars to watch such a bad product? And they have a point. I mean, and that's the struggle this group is going to have going forward. Last thing, Joe, they have the uh, modern era ballot will be coming out during the winter meetings. I mean, everybody's hoping that Marvin Miller, uh, who in this conversation, if not for Marvin Miller, I don't think you and I are having this conversation about repeater tax and all that stuff. You know, other names coming out, Mattingly, Steve Garvey, Tommy John, Dale Murphy, Jack Morris. Uh, I don't know if you have any kind of strong opinion on that, but uh, I'll throw it out to you. Uh, Any thoughts about whether the Veterans Committee should put one or more or any of some of the names that have been put out there on the modern era ballot? Marvin Miller belongs in the Hall of Fame. It's an absolute joke that he isn't. He made baseball players millionaires and owners billionaires. He has changed the game for the better. Um, If people don't believe that, then they have no understanding of baseball history. He is, without question, the most transformational figure in my lifetime, and I'm 59 years old, of following baseball. How he is not in the Hall of Fame is an embarrassment to the Hall of Fame. He represents everything that you would want from someone who is a Hall of Famer. And it is because some owners and owners' families have a gripe against them, but they're flying around in private jets and have never had to hold a real job in their lives because of the revenues that Marvin Miller helped drive. And um, you can go back and look at stories from the 1920s that said, if the Yankees keep spending money, baseball will be ruined. You know, so we've heard about how salaries have been destroyed the game for for 100 years. But the fact of the matter is Marvin Miller and what he did for the Players Association didn't just impact players, it impacted the sport for the better. And he belongs in the Hall of Fame really more than any of the other players on the ballot this year. Joe, as always, you bring the heat coming down from South Florida. Go get yourself a sweater in the 40-degree weather, all right? Enjoy some football, and uh, who knows? Maybe the Yankees will make a couple of moves this week. Uh, I'm sure the Mets will, and uh, it won't stop the fans from whining and complaining about something. So it's only the be- it's only the beginning. You know what I'm saying? So uh, sounds good, Mike. Know. Always great being with you. Take care, my friend. Be well. Bye bye, Casal. Uh, interesting sports media consultant. Haven't had him on in a while, and. Uh, you get a chance, go on Facebook and follow him. He always gives you good stories about um, his experiences as an agent in sports and business and things like that. So um, just, uh, again, a quick programming note before we wrap up here. Winter meetings, you know, obviously when you're listening to this, who the hell knows when you will be. These things could go stale pretty quick. So I was trying to take a different approach and give you something that would essentially last you 
a little bit longer than, you know, just a couple of days. But um, I, I definitely believe that, um, you know, you'll see some activity from the Mets, um, you know, and that, you know, like I said, the, the real thing here is you don't want to get too caught up in the Yankees. You can't compare business models. You can't complain about it. You're not being fair. You're not being knowledgeable. You could complain about the ownership group, but understanding what the ownership group is and what they can provide, um, you know, it gives you much more clarity about what the team you like, what you're, you know, what you're rooting for. If you want what the Yankees got, you got to root for the Yankees. You got to root for the Dodgers. You got to root for uh, the Red Sox. That's it. Right now, those are the teams that can do the high-level corporate spending. Um, you can't, you know, maybe you can ask for another $20, 30000000 million, but uh, you also have to rely on the front office to make shrewd decisions. And when you have some contracts, and, you know, the Mets don't have really bad contracts, like I said. Uh, you know, David Wright's a little ominous if he does get healthy and wants to play, and he does want to play, but what remains to be seen, you know, that, that could be a problem contract. So it's really the margin of error is what we're talking about here. And uh, it was really interesting, the, the, the wringing of the fingers and the hands and, and all the craziness that went on after the Stanton trade was announced. Hey, we're out of time. Uh, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Of course, I want to thank our buddy Joe Casal for stepping in and giving us a little perspective on the business side of the whole Giancarlo Stanton trade. Uh, of course, I want to thank the good folks over at Metsmarized Online. You could send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you can get the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. You know, it's going to be a wild week down in Florida for the winter meetings. And uh, there might be some late night uh, deals going down. So get some sleep and uh, we'll see you on Thursday. Thursday's the next time. So stay tuned till then. Take care.